Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast, The Revolution of 1848, Part 2 of 4. It was the 2nd of March, 1830, in Paris, in a national elected assembly, the Chamber of Deputies. Now in his 70s, Charles had grown up before the French Revolution of 1789. Extremely conservative in nature, he was determined to reign as an absolute monarch and refused to accept any limitation on his power. However, he had lost his parliamentary majority and now confronted the Chamber to try and restore his authority. Addressing the assembled deputies, he declared that if they opposed him, he would take the steps necessary to restore public order. So agitated was he, that in wavering his arms about, he knocked off his own hat, which rolled across the floor and landed at the feet of his cousin, Louis-Philippe, Duke of Orleans, who had acquired a reputation as a liberal. The symbolism was not lost on those present. When the deputies refused to fall into line, Charles held fresh elections, but these produced a stunning victory for the Liberals. In the meantime, the King declared war on Algeria, nominally a part of the Ottoman Empire. The invasion was partly to root out Barbary pirates who attacked the southern coasts of France. It was partly to secure part of the northern coast of Africa, in anticipation that it would be occupied by another European power. But the principal reason was to boost Charles's prestige with a show of military strength. In just three weeks, a French military force succeeded in occupying Algeria and in laying the foundations there for a new colonial empire. News of the success emboldened Charles into taking action against his internal opponents. On the 25th of July, the King dissolved the Chamber of Deputies, reducing the electorate to the richest 25% of existing voters. He also imposed strict official censorship. These actions provoked an uprising 
in the streets of Paris with students, veterans of Napoleon's army, print workers and ordinary people made desperate by three years of high grain and bread prices. The general put in charge to put down the uprising, however, of just 13,000 men, since most of his troops were on campaign in Algeria. The royalist soldiers shot dead several demonstrators, whose corpses were then paraded around the city to advertise their martyrdom. The next day, even larger crowds assembled, who responded with a new tactic, which was to become standard in later Parisian uprisings, the barricade. Protesters piled up cobbles from the street, adding furniture, upturned carts and anything else they could find. As royalist troops moved in, their retreat was blocked by trees felled behind them, and they were pelted with all kinds of objects from above. The royalist troops' morale was low, they were poorly equipped and reluctant to fire on crowds containing women and children. Two whole regiments went over to the insurrection, and the rest fled in disorder. Most public buildings now fell to the insurgents. The Liberal deputies printed and distributed a manifesto declaring Charles X deposed and urging the offer of the crown to Louis-Philippe. As more of his troops deserted, Charles gave in and fled to England and his cousin crowned as King Louis-Philippe I. The new king acted cautiously rather than making fundamental changes and the subsequent constitutional changes were very moderate in nature, but nevertheless it was a genuinely successful revolution, and known to history as the July Revolution. Louis-Philippe retained the right to appoint ministers, but was always careful to do so with the support of the deputies. The new government was no less ruthless in the repression of any signs of popular revolt, such as attempted uprisings by Republicans in Paris in June 1832 and in April 1834, events which gave inspiration to Victor Hugo's famous novel Les Miserables. The events in Paris inspired similar upheavals elsewhere. In the city of Aachen, for example, on the northwest edge of the German Confederation, the citizens rose in revolt, but Prussian troops marched in and dispersed the crowds. There is a mixed picture, generally across Germany, where in some states, liberals were able to win significant constitutional reforms. The July Revolution was also a source of inspiration in the Kingdom of the Netherlands, which comprised the territories of both the former Dutch Republic and the southern Austrian Netherlands. King Willem I discriminated against the Catholics, who formed the majority in Brussels and the southern half, forcing them to pay higher taxes and denying them equal representation in the administration. This naturally created great resentment and stoked national sentiment. In August 1830, Daniel Albert's opera La Muerte de Portici, about the repression of Neapolitans, was staged in Brussels. Performances of this show seemed to crystallise a sense of nationalism and prompted an uprising. Willem sent troops to repress the riots. In a few days of confused fighting, the Dutch troops were overawed by the barricaded defenders of the city and panicked. 
the uprising rapidly spread to Antwerp and other southern cities, and on the 4th of October 1830, the revolutionaries declared the independent state of Belgium. The reactions of the great powers differed. The Russians issued threats and mobilised their troops, while the southern German states argued for non-intervention. The French acted cautiously in view of the precarious situation of their own newly established government. The British Foreign Secretary, Lord Palmerston, convened a conference in November, which settled the main issues and established a constitutional monarchy for the new independent Belgian state. The July Revolution in Paris, meanwhile, also encouraged dissidents in the Italian peninsula, who believed an uprising against Austria would naturally be supported by a new liberal French king. The death of Pope Pius VIII at the end of November 1830 and the period of two months of interregnum that followed intensified the insurrectionary atmosphere. And in early February, uprisings broke out in Modena, Parma and Bologna and quickly spread throughout the regions of Romagna and the Marche. Belief in the assistance of revolutionary France, however, proved misguided. Instead, Louis-Philippe became increasingly alarmed by events in Italy. Apart from fears that the revolution might spiral out of control in a republican direction, he was concerned by the presence in Italy of members of the Bonaparte family, including Napoleon's nephew, the future Napoleon III. And so he indicated to Vienna that he would not intervene to stop Austria reasserting its authority over Italy. The ease and speed with which the Austrian government regained control demonstrated the lack of any serious national sentiment. Most of those who supported the insurrections in 1831 sought internal political and economic reforms, not national independence. There was only one significant clash between volunteers and Austrian troops near Rimini on the 25th of April, and even this engagement was minor. The events of 1831 were a major turning point in Italy. Many liberals came to look on secret societies with suspicion and came to the conclusion that there was not enough popular support to sustain an insurrection. Far better, they thought, to work with the existing governments to improve economic, political and social conditions, with public opinion gradually pressurising rulers into conceding reforms. As opposed to this moderate approach, the more radical dissidents came to a different conclusion. The general population needed more overt agitation, and if necessary, rulers who refused to move fast enough to bring reform would need to be unseated. Meanwhile, in Poland, an uprising occurred in November 1830, when the local nobility reacted against the Tsar's mobilisation of the Polish army in response to the revolutions in Western Europe. The insurrection lasted ten months and was crushed after some bloody and intense fighting by a massive Russian army. In the retribution which followed, 80,000 Poles 
were dragged off in chains to Siberia. This brutal repression of the Polish uprising horrified many in Western Europe, who were unsettled by Tsar Nicholas I's exceptionally reactionary stance. The year 1830 also witnessed the formal independence of Greece from the Ottoman Empire after a war which had begun nine years before. The Turks had initially reacted with extreme brutality to an uprising in 1821 when a Greek National Assembly was formed and first declared independence. Patriarch Gregorius V of Constantinople was hanged in public and in 1822 the Ottomans murdered or deported the entire population of the island of Chios. Three years later, frustrated by the continuing resistance of Greek nationalists, the Sultan called upon his Egyptian vassal, Mehmet Ali, to suppress the rising. However, the Greeks were strengthened by the support of Britain, France and Russia, and in 1827 destroyed a joint Ottoman-Egyptian fleet at the Battle of Navarino. The Turks were then forced to come to terms in 1829 at the Treaty of Adrianople. The support of the Greek powers for Greece was an exception to their general object of maintaining the status quo. Britain, France and Prussia were cautious about other nations in the Balkans gaining independence, or for Ottoman rule in the region to collapse completely for fear of the instability and potential conflict which could follow. Soon after Greece's independence in 1832, the Ottomans successfully crushed a rebellion in Bosnia, demonstrating that they still had the military power to assert themselves over rebels and revolutionaries who did not have the same level of international support that the Greeks had enjoyed. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ideas of nationalism spread rapidly across Europe in the 1830s and 1840s. Many of its advocates sought to free their nation from a foreign yoke such as the Poles, whose lands had been partitioned between Russia, Prussia and Austria. In the Habsburg territories, distinctive national groups such as the Czechs and Hungarians sought greater autonomy, but not generally the dissolution of the monarchy. A second type of nationalism rather than separation from an empire, sought to bring together a single nation which was split into independent states, notably in Italy. Here the leading figure was Giuseppe Mazzini, who was exiled from Italy and lived in Marseille. Having witnessed the disunity of insurrections in northern Italy in 1831, 
which had been easily suppressed by the Austrians, Bazzini was convinced of the need for a truly national organisation, dedicated above all to expelling the Austrians from the peninsula. To this end, he founded a group called Young Italy, which rapidly gained a membership of many thousands. After organising failed coups in Piedmont in Genoa, he was condemned to death in absentia and took refuge in Switzerland. There he went on to help create individual national movements across Europe, including Young Austria, Young Bohemia, Young Ukraine and Young Tyrol. However, there were often differences among political agitators between those who were motivated principally by liberal ideology and others for whom national sentiment was central. There were also splits between those who strived to use legal methods to persuade regimes to grant reforms and the radicals who wanted to destroy the monarchy by revolution. Liberalism and radicalism may well have been confined in each country to a few thousand individuals, but there was also a more widespread opposition to governments among the general population, fuelled by poverty and the dislocation caused by the economic transformation that was underway. Pressures arose from a sustained rise in population, which had begun in the mid-18th century, as agricultural technology and practices improved, and continued relentlessly ever since. Ultimately, economic growth would ease this pressure, but this process of new job creation took time and was uneven across the continent. Industrial production in the early 19th century was overwhelmingly small-scale, concentrated in individual workshops, and driven by human or horse power, wood fires, water mills or windmills. In parts of Western Europe, agricultural workers supplemented their meagre incomes with a handloom or spinning wheel in their home, selling their product to a middleman under the so-called putting-out system. Then, during the French Revolutionary Wars and Napoleonic Wars, Britain had forged ahead economically, leaving the European continent far behind. The textile business was traditionally based on linen and wool, but in the late 18th century, cotton became increasingly popular. The British mass-produced cloth from raw cotton grown with cheap labour in India, and they exported the finished products across the globe, which together helped their domination of the seas. Mechanisation of cotton production dramatically lowered prices while producing a better quality and a finer yarn. This industry boomed particularly in the north of England, Lancashire, Yorkshire, Derbyshire and Cheshire, where fast-flowing mountain streams turned the water wheels that powered the machinery. After the Napoleonic Wars, the mechanisation of the textile industry grew rapidly on the continent, at least in certain pockets such as northern and southeastern France, Belgium, some regions of Germany, particularly the Rhineland and Silesia, and parts of Bohemia and Austria. Where the land was flat and the river sluggish, steam power was used from the outset, since water mills were impractical. The introduction of steam technology was rightly described as an industrial revolution, a term first used in France in the 1820s. The key difference where it was used in industry is that beforehand, workers relied on using their muscle power. 
Natural sources of power played a part in the first stage of the Industrial Revolution, but quickly steam became the key source of power. This was a decisive breakthrough. From now on, society was free from the tyranny of the elements and the limitations of the human, elemental and animal strength in the creation of industrial power. In the long run, perhaps of greatest significance, was the production of coal and iron. Here, Britain became dominant. Between 1815 and 1830, coal output in Britain virtually doubled from 16 million tonnes to 30 million. As late as the 1860s, Britain was still producing more than twice as much coal as the rest of Europe put together. Steam power was also rapidly revolutionising travel and transport by river, canal and sea. Steamboats were already operating on the rivers Clyde and Thames in 1815, and their use, mainly for carrying passengers, quickly spread to the continent. Crucial to the growth of rail transport was the invention of the self-propelled steam-powered locomotive by Richard Trevithick in the early 19th century, an improvement spared by George Stevenson and his son Robert. In September 1830, the Liverpool and Manchester railway line was open to much celebration, and once in operation, carried not only large quantities of raw cotton and coal, but also half a million passengers in its first year. Within 20 years, there were 7,000 miles of railway line extending across many parts of the British mainland, and not long after, much of the continent developed their own railway lines in the 1830s and 1840s. Before the Industrial Revolution, the production of goods was regulated across much of Europe by guilds. These were institutions which aimed to maintain high standards of production and to ensure a decent living for those in the trade by controlling prices and across much of Europe were highly influential. As mechanised production grew, however, guilds struggled to retain their influence. The decisive blow came with the French Revolution, when guilds were formally abolished in France. The textile guilds of Flanders and Western Germany were then destroyed when the French invaded. After the restoration of 1815, in France they returned, but were severely weakened, and in Germany guild privileges were abolished to allow everyone the freedom to choose their own trade without any restrictions. As mass industrial production expanded, only in luxury goods did guilds retain any influence, with a growing population workers' livelihoods became ever more insecure. Artisans and craft workers found that their skills and independence were being threatened and desperation pushed them into insurrection. In the year 1844, in Silesia, for example, handweavers sinking under pressure from competition from both Britain and the newly established mills in Poland rose up in revolt. The Prussian army marched in to restore order and killed ten of the weavers. The future lay with trade unions, but they took time to develop and were discouraged by the authorities. Towns and cities became increasingly crammed with poverty-stricken masses. The building of affordable housing, the provision of sanitation and the delivery of a clean water system was unable to keep pace with the migration of the rural poor from the countryside. Under these conditions, a ghastly new disease Cholera made its first appearance in Western Europe 
in 1832. In the mid-1840s, the plight of many became even worse due to a cyclical trade slump combined with harvest failure which gave the era the name of the Hungry Forties. The great tragedy was that while the grain harvest failed, so too did the potato, which had become the main backup crop. For example, it proved indispensable foodstuff in areas of Hungary and Poland in the absence of adequate supplies of grain. In the summer of 1845, warm and humid weather conditions across Europe caused the infection of potatoes everywhere by fungal blight that turned them into a rotten mush. The blight was worst where winters were mild and summers wet, such as in Ireland and the west of Scotland, but it affected almost all of Europe in one way or another. In Belgium, crop yields collapsed by 87%, and in the Netherlands by 71%. The situation in Ireland was particularly bad due to dependency there on the potato crop and also a lack of relief from government. Distressing reports of the appalling situation reached London in autumn 1845, but there were political obstacles in the way. The most important of these were the Corn Laws, which protected the interests of land-owning aristocrats by imposing extremely steep import duties on grain from outside the country and encouraging exports. The government of Sir Robert Peel announced in January 1846 the intention to repeal the Corn Laws, a triumph for the Liberal, mostly middle-class proponents of free trade. But assistance came too late for the Irish, who lost about a million people, or around a fifth of the entire population of the island. This made it the greatest of all European famines in the 19th century. In addition, huge numbers of the survivors responded by emigrating many to the United States. Overall, in Europe, the crop failure and potato blight plunged the economy into depression from 1846 onwards. Starving and desperate people flocked to the towns in large numbers. Artisans struggled to find food just as food prices were soaring, and in addition, there was a massive increase in university students, especially in Germany, who found themselves without money, without a prospect of a job after graduating. As social tensions rose across the continent, the various rulers became increasingly nervous for impending unrest. In France, the historian and social thinker Alexis de Tocqueville rose in the Chamber of Deputies and warned his colleagues that the consequences of the grumbling discontent among the masses. Quote, I believe that right now we are sleeping on a volcano. Can you not sense that earth is trembling again in Europe? Can you not feel the wind of revolution in the air? End quote. But probably nobody expected the extent of disorder which was about to take place in what was to become an iconic year, 1848. My name is Carl Rylett and you've been listening to History of Europe Key Battles podcast. If you enjoyed the show, why not give it a good review on iTunes or wherever you have listened to the podcast. If you'd like to help support the show, please visit 
patreon.com slash history europe. Today's music was Felix Mendelssohn's Italian Symphony Number no. 4. The first and then the fourth movement. I hope you enjoyed. Thank you for listening and I hope you can join me next time for the next part on the revolutions of 1848. Until then, all the best and goodbye. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.